But how do you know? Perhaps the most important and dangerous phrase in all the world. Cause of and solution to all of life's problems. To want to know. To realize what it takes to know. And in trying to achieve knowing, coming to embrace the void. If anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 205 of Embrace the Void, where the wind comes sweeping through the endless expanse of nothingness. I am your host, Aaron, and this week, some pseudoscience-flavored conspiracism. So let's do our own research. All life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in something. My guest this week is Melanie Tresick King, a teacher at a community college who teaches a course on distinguishing between science, non-science, bad science, and pseudoscience. She also developed a website devoted to the same issues called Thinking is Power. Melanie, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. <laughs> it's so nice to have you on. I appreciate you taking the time. We had a couple of interactions on Twitter, and I feel like we're sort of very much in the same waters on dealing with these epistemic crisis issues. So I'm excited to hear a little bit about your pedagogical approach to this topic. And I very much enjoy watching your interactions on Twitter. And I'm really happy to be here. So thank you for having me. <laughs> No one should spend any amount of time following my interactions on Twitter, but I'm, I'm glad that it allows for me to meet such interesting people who I can then entrap into the void like this. Um, so before we get to the uh, the meat of your, your activities that I think are really fun, um, do you want to let folks know a little bit about your background and sort of what, what in that brings you to teaching about science and science literacy? Yeah, so I've been teaching at a community college for about 15 years now and um, love teaching at a community college because I do get to spend most of my time with students and teaching. And my background is plant ecology and teach mostly courses for non-science majors. And I love those courses a lot because, um, you know, science is so exciting and a great way of knowing. And you know, the students that I tend to see in classes are science phobic. They're there because they have to be there. And mm. so um, it was my chance, probably the last time they would ever have a science class, to show them the awesomeness that is science. And I taught intro bio for years. And mm -hmm. like most places, it's a watered down majors version. And, you know, there's cells and genetics and mm -hmm. protein synthesis. And I remember trying really hard to make the content relevant. And yet I mm -hmm. realized the students were leaving class still hating science and purging everything that they managed to put into their brain for an exam. And so I finally mm -hmm. thought, you know, there's got to be a better way. So I looked for it and just decided that it wasn't worth trying to reiterate that class, mm -hmm. scrap it, start all over again. And so I did. Yeah, I think this is really cool, right? So this is a intro bio course, but it's not, I think, what people would expect from an intro bio course. It's a course, like I said, about scientific literacy um, where in your syllabus you say you know your goal is to help them develop 
uh, understanding of the difference between science, non-science, bad science, and pseudoscience. Um, so I was wondering, could you start us out here a little bit with some basic definitions? What is the difference between those four things, maybe with some like concrete examples? <laughs> yeah, oh, that's a huge question. And honestly, sure. it takes me about a half of a semester to get to that question. <laughs> I know. Do it, in, do it in like a minute and a half. Go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because... Oh, most science classes start with chapter one, scientific method, and it's the mm -hmm. recipe, you know, you start with an observation and next thing you know, you've got an experiment and you did a science and then it's left for the rest <laughs> of the semester, right? But here's all the stuff we learned. Mm -hmm. So actually I just have to, there's a great Carl Sagan quote that really inspired me. And it's, um, mm. I'm going to paraphrase because I'm going to forget the exact wording, but it's something to the effect of, if we teach only the findings and products of science without the method, then how is anyone to ever tell the difference? So mm -hmm. I spend the first half of the semester on the ways that we fool ourselves. Actually, I start day one by fooling students and we can get into that if you want to. But yeah. by the time I get to science as a science way of knowing, right? So science isn't um, a method where if you don't do it this way, mm -hmm. it's not science, right? So what is science? Mm -hmm. I use the definition, Naomi Oreskes, of science as a community of experts using diverse methods to evaluate claims. Postmodernism is what you're saying, right? It, that neo-Marxist exactly. good stuff that I hear about, right? Where the science is or something, yeah. Well, I mean, it's a college classroom, so. <laughs> good. No, I'm, I'm indoctrinating, you're indoctrinating. Yes, please carry, carry on with your indoctrination, please. <laughs> yes. So then um, pseudoscience is wanting to believe something, so a very low standard mm -hmm. of evidence. So it puts on the um, trappings of science to pretend to be science to basically justify a belief in something that doesn't have evidence or can't have evidence because it's not falsifiable. We talk a lot about science denial as well as a mm -hmm. form of non-science, and that would be refusal to accept well-established science, usually through mm -hmm. things like fake experts and impossible expectations, cherry picking. All of them involve conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. So, and then bad science in terms of the one that very easily comes to mind would be um, the Andrew Wakefield study. The initial study, I suppose, wasn't bad science, just low quality evidence, but then how it's been interpreted, misinterpreted, and so on. And so the entire class, then what I do is I present them with a variety of claims, a lot of pseudoscience and science now, and then have them evaluate, mm -hmm. is the evidence that we have justified in accepting this? Mm -hmm. So let me ask you just to clarify this, this these different terms a little bit. So how would something like intelligent design do you feel like be classified in this list? I would classify that as, um, I call pseudoscience and science denial science pretenders. And so they're kind of two halves of a, two sides of a coin. And so mm -hmm. evolution denial would be mm -hmm. the um, not wanting to accept the established science in that case because of deeply held beliefs that seem seemingly contradict with it. And then the denial usually or can fuel belief in something that is pseudoscience in that mm -hmm. case intelligent mm -hmm. design or creationism okay so like a movement like creationism or something can involve a mix of these different things it's not just pseudoscience there could be a mix of like denying of certain kinds of scientific methods and also propping up of other kinds of things that that more support your position essentially yeah, I mean, there's there's a the demarcation problem and where exactly mm -hmm. the lines for any of these things are. But um, the way that I at least explain it to my students is that if there's a desire to believe and then a low standard of evidence, that would be a mm -hmm. form of pseudoscience. If there is a not wanting to accept and an impossibly high standard of evidence set, then that would be denial. That's a good distinction. I, all right, that makes good sense. So tell me about how you screw with your students at the get-go. What's the first sort of bit of uh, messing with them that you do to start them on your red-pilled journey? Um, yeah, I realize how dangerous this is. Um, but the first day of class, we cover the syllabus. Mm -hmm. And legit the first day. Um, I have them... Um, I 
tell them that I am working with a psychic and an astrologer to give them a personality reading. Um, it's the mm. old trick. I'm sure you've seen a version of this, but um, so mm-hmm. I, I have this pretty elaborate ruse actually, where um, I have them give me their full name and birth date because of numerology and astrology. And then I ask them questions to get to who they are. Like um, if you could do one thing and get paid for it, what would it be? Or if your house was on fire and you could Mm -hmm. save one thing, what would it be? By the way, I really hope none of my students are listening to this before my class. Um, And so then I I give them readings. (laughs) Spoilers. (laughs) Spoilers. I give them their readings and I ask them to tell me uh, how accurate it was. And probably the average is, four to four and a half out of five. Um, And I ask Mm, them like, what mm -hmm. in here really spoke to you? Right. And then I put them in groups and have them talk to each other about what they thought about their reading was really accurate. And honestly, it could take sometimes several minutes for them to see it because they've cherry picked the Barnum statements that they feel apply to them. And, but I mean, they all got the same one. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then we get to talk about, yes, I did fool you. And I'm sorry Uh I fooled you, but I did it for free and I did it for educational purposes. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, if I just told them that they could be fooled, they wouldn't necessarily believe me. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't like to think we can be fooled. And yet Mm -hmm. I demonstrate that they are easily fooled to make sure that they start to. Um, practice skepticism. Mm-hmm. I, I'm really into this. Um, I was taking a class this past semester about education in the post-truth world, and it was all about the like the epistemic crisis, and then like what are different techniques mm-hmm. by which we can like prepare individuals to deal with the epistemic crisis. And one of the reoccurring themes in the debate was how much should we be playing with live ammunition essentially when we're trying to get them to deal with like when we're, when we're, when we're preparing them for the world, right? Do you give them artificial materials that are easily distinguishable as bad materials? Or do you do this kind of thing where you, put them at risk to a little bit by giving them this sense of, you know, what it is actually like to believe these sorts of things or, you know, put them in in the space with like genuine live kind of conspiracy theories or something like that. So um, what what is it about, you know, scientific literacy and the way that you think about scientific literacy that you feel like it's really important to be, you know, doing this to them, to be taking this sort of more robust approach rather than like the first day being like, here's, here's the list of things to look out for, memorize this list. Yeah. I I mean, most measures of science literacy, unfortunately, are things like, um, how long does it take the earth to go around the sun or Mm -hmm. which is smaller an electron or an atom? And those things are important. I'm not saying that they're not, but, um, Mm -hmm. those things are also easily look upable. And the question is, when presented with a claim, can you think through that claim? And um, this last year, actually, mm-hmm. um, I've been teaching this class over the pandemic, and the pandemic has offered an endless supply of claims for them to debunk. But I think back to my students that I had taught over the years in intro bio. I kind of feel like I let them down, honestly, because, mm-hmm. you know, when there's mm-hmm. a new vaccine, right, were they able to understand the process mm-hmm. of testing that results in a new vaccine? Or are they able to understand um, who to trust? Um, are they able to see signs of misinformation? And so to me, science literacy mm-hmm. is critical thinking about science. And so I designed the course for the purpose of um, giving them a toolkit to evaluate claims and then giving them a lot of practice, um, some of them low stakes, some of them high stakes, um, in terms of um, how much, how strongly they are likely to have already believed those things. Um, Mm -hmm. But then hopefully um, in the real world, they're able to implement these own things. I, I, my, the premise of the, uh, of the course is intellectual empowerment. I came across a quote 
Mm-hmm. Um, something to the effect of um, the quality of your life is determined by the quality of your decisions and the quality of your decisions is determined by the quality of your thinking. And so it's really mm-hmm. about being able to think better. And so empowering students through teaching them science literacy skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm very on board with a lot of these approaches and it, I think it's very tricky because you're trying to sort of simultaneously breed in them a sense of both empowerment and humility, right? Like your activity there is about sort of taking them down a peg in terms of like their own thinking about their own confidence with regard to their abilities so that you can hopefully then build them back up to a point where they can feel confident pointing to things and saying that's misinformation. Um, But like they first have to have that, like, you know, everybody falls the first time kind of experience. Um, And it's, you know, again, I think it is this very, tricky sort of live ammo activity but I, I think it is it seems like the most important um kind of approach here and i think it does i, I think there's probably good reason to think that it's the only thing that it's going to help now i think i'm also a little worried about if this alone can do that but we'll talk about that um in a second so the the one of the other activities that you do that i want to get us to here has to do with conspiracies and i've been talking a lot about conspiracies on the show recently and on Twitter. Um, And I want to first sort of give you a chance. Can you say a little bit about sort of how you see the relationship, if any, between the kind of pseudoscience stuff? So your class is nominally not about conspiracies, but you have things involved with it that are these kind of conspiracy related um, activities. So what do you see as the relationship between pseudoscience and conspiracism? Yeah, in order for any pseudoscience or denial belief to hold there has to be a conspiracy Mm -hmm. conspiracism the conspiratorial thinking um simply has to be a part of i'm thinking about like um a very commonly held um conspiracy that um there's a natural cure for cancer that's being hidden Mm -hmm. and so okay um what does that conspiracy entail? Like it would require all the scientists in the United States is usually because we do have a messed up healthcare system. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's supposedly motive, but it would require academic scientists and government scientists and private industry scientists. And also there's 190 some countries on earth, not just the United States. I mean, why would they all keep a secret so big pharma could make money? Mm-hmm. And like climate change denial. So climate mm-hmm. change denial would require the conspiring of scientists in every country in like paleobotany to like a modern ecology. You'd have to have um, all of them working together for what? Like what is their what is their goal? Mm-hmm. But if you don't want to accept that claim or if you want to believe in something like the natural cure for cancer being hidden, there has to be a conspiracy. And so teaching conspiracies is um, um, understanding conspiratorial thinking is important for being able to assess those kinds of claims. And do you mm-hmm. want me to talk about the activity that I do? Uh, well, so, one second, actually. Um, yeah. before, before we get to that, I just want to, there's a point there that I think you bring up that is uh, significant in this education area, which is, you know, in having this conversation, there has to be, it seems like part of the conversation, an, a recognition of the reality that some conspiracies do exist. And that like, especially in the modern era, we have evidence of particularly bad conspiracies of various sorts. Um, and so like, do you talk to your students about, yes, real conspiracies exist. Here are some examples of them. Here's how you distinguish between them and kind of conspiracy theories that are less likely to be true? Oh, for sure. Um, Mm. However, real conspiracies existing doesn't mean that the other conspiracies are true, of course. Of course. Um, But conspiracy, when we find conspiracies, it's because we've used the kinds of um, uh, methods of evidence gathering that help us define them. Conspiratorial thinking does not help us find conspiracies. So mm-hmm. when people are holding these conspiracies, um, I call it the get out of jail free card. So it's the like, none of this is fitting. The evidence I'm being presented with is not fitting 
with my worldview or this belief. Mm -hmm. It's a Mm -hmm. conspiracy, right? So it's the last ditch effort to make it stick. Um, And so if you want to find real conspiracies, we have to be able to think critically. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. So I just wanted to sort of add that in there because I think... Um, that is a, st- a sticking point for some folks. So now now let's talk about your activity, which I, you lovingly title Wake Up Sheeple, which is wonderful. And I, I'm curious, can you explain it? And especially like, what are the features of it that you think are particularly important? Because like we're saying, we're dealing with this sort of somewhat dangerous material. Like what are the key features that you include to make sure that this is a productive activity for your students? Yeah, so... Um... The idea of the activity is for students to make their own conspiracy. So they have to tell me who did what and why, and then what's the evidence for it. So um, they have to have conspirators (laughs) and some sort of like evil motive, and then um, find pieces of evidence, cherry pick pieces of evidence to make a consistent narrative. Um, I tell them to be as wild and wacky as possible because it's way more fun that way. Um, And then Mm -hmm. after they've made their conspiracy, other students try to poke holes in it and they have to defend it against attempts at falsification. So they learn um, pattern recognition and they learn motivated reasoning and confirmation bias and cherry picking. um, And, Mm -hmm falsifiability. I mean, conspiracy theories are immune to evidence. All evidence is incorporated into the conspiracy. If the evidence is missing, it's because it was covered up or um, contradictory Mm -hmm. evidence was planted or, you know, it's a false flag. So whatever somebody tries, uh, another student tries to show you you're wrong, you have to make it fit. Um, And so, yeah, Mm -hmm. they they have a a lot of fun with it. But um, this, it, that activity is um, um, it's part of a, a inoculation theory. So it's this um, um, educational right. theory of, you know, you expose somebody to little bits of misinformation and then hopefully in the real world, they're inoculated against it. And this is active inoculation. So they make misinformation. Um, and I have them do this um, mm-hmm. in other aspects of class. Um, you know, they, I have them design an advertisement for a pseudoscience product, or um, I have them, um, I've had them make fake news before, or mm-hmm. um, I, <laughs> I have this one um, really fun activity um, where they email me why they shouldn't fail the class. Mm-hmm. And um, I got the idea because, you know, I'm teaching them to think critically. And then, you know, around the withdrawal date i'd get these emails that were very poorly argued about why they shouldn't fail you know like my dog got sick and Uh you know it's just you're a horrible person and so um yeah they have to make a poor argument for why they shouldn't fail um Mm. and in all of those is an aspect of humor and I think Mm -hmm. humor is, you know, such a a great tool for learning. It gets their guard down. They have fun with it. Um, And through creating the misinformation, my goal then hopefully would be then they could learn how easy it is to make shit up and try to Uh sell it. (laughs) And I assume you do you read all of them or do you read some of them or do you listen to all of them? Do they present them all in class or something? Yeah, I've had them. um, So, you know, haven't been in class with my students. I've been online for the last three semesters. Oh, sure. Um, Yeah. Fair enough. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it's terrible. Um, These kinds of group activities are difficult to do. Um, When they're face-to-face, they do it in groups. Um, Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I I read them all and provide them all with feedback. And so let's talk about some. Some of them are very humorous. Yeah. Do you have any, like, favorites in terms of, like, the funniest, for starters? Oh, you know, there was one where um, it was about Donald Trump and the JFK assassination and Mm -hmm. something about like the Chicago mafia and like Mm -hmm. they were prostitutes and uh, yeah. Seems plausible Um, so far. Yeah, right. 
and there was a time travel one, and I actually think there's a time travel one out there someplace. But like, like mm-hmm. Donald Trump traveled to the future and then realized he was going to lose, and so then traveled in the past to plant the idea that he may lose. And then, like, at one point, they had him going all the way back to, like, 19th century. They get really mm-hmm. creative with it. Um, and there are these pieces of evidence out there. Like, if, if you go to the shady mm-hmm. corners of the Internet, you can find this stuff. And so, you know, the students will ask. I've well, seen the time traveling use- Donald Trump one before, actually. <laughs> yeah. It's inc- well, this is why I'm saying I don't think I could come up with any of these because I don't think anybody would believe them. Um mm-hmm. But they ask me if they have to use good sources for this assignment. I'm like, no. Why would you use good sources? Like, this is the whole point. <laughs> like, you find as crappy sources as you want and sell it. You are it. required <laughs> to use Infowars. <laughs> Definitely. How dare you cite Wikipedia? Uh, do any of them take it in like a really dark place? Um, I'm curious. Like, are there any very voidy conspiracies that they sometimes come up with? And actually, do you? Do you feel like the conspiracies have gotten darker in the age of COVID? You know, my memory is crap, so I'm probably not going to be able to remember lots of details. I just remember laughing a lot at them. So if mm-hmm. they were, they were still in a humorous way. Mm-hmm. They actually really enjoy making this kind of humor and they're really creative at it. And so mm-hmm. and they tell me um, in their write-ups afterwards how much they enjoyed being able to um create these kinds of like wild conspiracies mm-hmm. and i say and, and now i'm um the pseudoscience ads they do something very similar because I, I i give them mm-hmm. um i'm going to stop limiting them in the future and in the past i've done like you can do like a weight loss ad or you can do um, like a skin cream or penis enlargement because those are some of the big cells. And of course I get lots of penis enlargement ads and they, you know, um, some of those are probably not very family friendly, but they're always funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fair. So you said, I think you said in there that you personally have trouble making up your own conspiracy. Have you ever tried like doing the assignment yourself and seeing what kind of Mad Libs you came up with? No, because every time I've thought about doing it, I just don't feel like I'm creative enough to come up with something. Um, Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I don't think they would be believable. But then I see the kinds of things that people actually do believe. And I think I know. Isn't that the whole point is that like all conspiracies are functionally believable in the sense that like once you have the structure in place, you can get them be- to believe, you know, pumping adrenochrome out of children or something like you can get anything out of them. See, I, I never even would have gone there because I wouldn't have thought that was believable. Mm-hmm. That's funny. Um, it seems like, I don't know, I guess you should challenge yourself right sometime and just try it and see like see what you can actually do there. Um, I'm curious to see what you would come up with. Do you do you ever worry when you're talking about these kinds of things? Because like sometimes, so so let me let me back up a second here. So the flip side of the playing with live ammo argument is, I think there has to be a point in the conversation in these critical thinking courses where we say, look, this thing is pseudoscience, right? And what Andrew Wakefield did is objectively bad, not up for debate, right? Um, do you have those moments in your classes and do you worry at all about students in the class who might feel at all alienated because they end up because they believe one of the things that you're like, no, this is this is just wrong in the classroom? Yeah, um, we cover the MMR um, mm-hmm. autism and um I've had students believe that, uh, but that's later in the semester and I've never had a reaction to covering that that is anything other than, yeah, I. I see now that he was a fraud even. Um, mm-hmm. I've had the very first day when I do the astrology reading, I've had some students right away. Like I remember one um, particular class, there was a, a group of girls um, talking about how they go to an astrologer and how, oh, this astrologer is so going to get me because, you know, mm-hmm. she understands it. And I have felt bad in those moments, but I've not 
when I've debriefed and offered them the chance to um, think about what happened, what the lesson was, and talk about it, it's always been good mm-hmm. feedback. The other thing is, um, uh, I um, part of the class um, I stole. <laughs> They let me steal it, so it's all good. Mm -hmm. Um, From this wonderful course uh, at a Sam Houston State, and they start their class as I do with witches. And so, day Mm. uh, one, when I start lecturing, it's witchcraft and the history of witchcraft and people being tortured and what they were accused of and why people would believe that. And the reason that is effective is that most of my students the vast majority of them don't believe in witchcraft. That's an easy belief to sort of stand back and more objectively Mm. evaluate why people would have thought that witches were causing hailstorms or birth defects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so um, starting that way, I think, takes them a bit out. And I I start also with an epistemology, you know, think of something you believe Um, what would convince you that it's wrong, you know, Mm -hmm. what is the evidence for it and so on. Um, And it's that intellectual humility. And so there's a progression of the course I actually think is really important in terms Mm -hmm. of what beliefs get addressed and when and what kinds of concepts have been covered up to that point. Um, Mm. So that when some of the more loaded ones are covered, the students are better able to be objective about it. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think just the examples you put forward there, like, I think what you're talking about in general makes sense. And at the same time, it, it presents the difficulty of trying to tailor your examples to with a large group, because, like, starting with astrology, for example, is is bold in a sense, because I think unlike a lot of the stuff that you might end up looking at, like Bigfoot or something, probably even a majority of people probably believe in some soft version of, of some astrology. Like even if they don't like go to an astrologer or something, they might believe, you know, some version of the moon impacting their behavior or something like that, right? Some some way in which the celestial bodies are influencing things very broadly. Um, so, and, and that one also, like if you think about it on the stake spectrum, you know, it might feel like lower stakes, I think, maybe to people like us who probably aren't less like or less likely to believe in those things. But for a lot of folks, that could be really high stakes because people might have made, you know, life altering decisions based on, you know, a reading that they got at some point And that could like really mess with them. And then like similarly on the Wiccan one, you know, like you're right, like most people don't believe in witchcraft. Um, and so talking about the history there is interesting, but you probably, you know, there's there's some chance that you might at some point have a student who is like a practicing Wiccan or something like that. Um, and then like where, you know, how do they deal with that? Though maybe it's no different really than, um, you know, talking about intelligent design or something, knowing that you have some Christians in your classroom. So um, I just think that, it, yeah, it's very tricky to be dealing with that. And I imagine you have to have like sort of on the fly conversations with your students sometimes about how to balance those those feelings. Yeah. And and um, I, I actually do a case study on astrology later in the semester where we do a more thorough job evaluating it. But starting out with that personality reading, um, I'm very clear with them. I didn't disprove psychic powers. I didn't mm-hmm. disprove astrology. I mean, I, I can't do that. It's not falsifiable in, in that sense. Um, and so um, the point, though, is what kinds of evidence that we use when um, trying to determine if something is true and how sure are we that that's true. And so Mm -hmm. separating out um, what kinds of things we can know from what kinds of things that we can't know and um, intellectual humility is so important. Um, How sure are you of something? And you really shouldn't be that sure of anything and certainly not sure of something that's this easily faked. And in that particular mm-hmm. example, that's the point. It was really easy for me to fake this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. If the claim is psychic powers, for example, then the evidence should be more than something that is easily faked. And by the way, I also teach them how to be mm-hmm. psychics. Oh, do you? You do the cold reading training or something like that? I do. 
what do you teach them? Do you teach them just like basic, like how to pick up a hit and, and like, you know, focus on it or something? Yeah, I teach them um, like uh, definitely Barnum statements. Um, mm-hmm. about, do you want to explain like, that real quick um, for folks who aren't familiar with the Barnum statements? Sure. Um, so Barnum statements are named after P.T. Barnum, but um, so um, he would have um, state. These are statements that are broad and basically apply to anyone, um, but they produce what's called the Barnum effect, which is people interpret them as being um, uniquely applicable to them. So if I mm-hmm. said um, you tend to be um, introverted most of the time, but you know, at the life, uh, if um, the mood strikes, you can be the center and life of a party. Mm-hmm. Or you tend to be critical of yourself or even things like you have a scar on your knee, right? Mm-hmm. Those things are surprisingly applicable to the vast majority of people. So, mm-hmm. um, but when you hear them, especially in a context where you're prone to believing you want to believe, um, you think, oh, wow, they were so right. Um, and so I, I teach them Barnum statements and, you know, things like, read the person. So um, is this person mm-hmm. uh, married? If they're um, your age, they're probably thinking, what is my career choice? You know, what am I um, going to the right school? Am I on the right path? You know, should I be um, um, girlfriend or boyfriend issues or something? And mm-hmm. so um, getting the feedback, you know, minimizing the things you got wrong, going in on the things that you got right and just using people's desire to believe that you're a psychic mm-hmm. to your advantage. And then I have mm-hmm. them um, evaluate well-known psychics. And then, you know, the students will say, um, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Now, could there be psychics yeah. out there? Sure. But once you learn those techniques, you see them do it and go, you know, I'm getting someone with an M name, you know, Mary, Melanie, Marie, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Do you, who do you use? Uh, do you have particular ones that you show them? Yeah. I'm a huge fan of Teresa Caputo. Uh, and John Edwards. Oh, I don't know. Okay, yeah, John Edwards is the classic, of course, right? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, do, the, do you talk Teresa about... Teresa is the Long also... Island. Okay, right. Do you talk also about other, like, techniques that they'll use? So, like, Edwards is famous, for example, for, like, doing, like, four-hour reading, you know, of a room and, like, cutting it down to, like, only just the good stuff or things like that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um and then um, you can watch people being read and um, they're there because mm-hmm. they want to believe. And so you can see them trying to make sense of what the psychic is saying. And so, you know, mm-hmm. the the key is you make them do the work. And when they don't get it right, it's because they're not working hard enough. And you can see them trying to make sense of things. Um, and then only mm-hmm. remembering afterwards, like if you can get the cases where they get interviewed afterwards, they'll forget all the things that were wrong. And just like, oh, they were so mm-hmm. right about that. Right. right, all those classic effects. So I'm curious, do y'all, um, as you're do- you know going through all this kind of stuff, so, so one thing that I worry about broadly speaking first of all is that like as educators we only have so many like a very limited set of levers that we can pull to help people and they mostly are levers about helping you know teach literacy or or stuff like this to individuals but a lot of the problem is that like the systems are getting worse in terms of like we are being bombarded by more and more information you know misinformation online and that like do you worry as an educator first of all it that like you know you're providing them such a like there's only so much that you can do to help them in if like if we're not going to change the ecosystems that they are living in like no amount of training is going to you know make the human mind resilient enough to all of the like stuff that's out there yeah i mean i see them for four months three Mm -hmm. hours a week um and we're in a system that it's just, it's like playing whack-a-mole. You just can't keep up with all of it. And that's kind of the point mm-hmm. is you can't keep up with all of it. And so, um, you know, the underlying skills, theoretically, the underlying skills of critical thinking and of science literacy can help individuals in the system, you know, if they want to um, 
they have to be motivated to do it, of course. Um, and that's actually something mm-hmm. else that's really important is that um, I address the harm question, quite frankly, because you'll get, well, what does it hurt if I believe this? And so mm, yeah. um, y- y- with astrology, somebody who makes life decisions based on astrology, you know, or mm-hmm. um, somebody who believes that diet can cure cancer, um, so there are real harms to this. And so mm-hmm. um, you try to give them the skills and the motivation. Um, information literacy skills, by the way, are also really important. And and I do cover that as an aspect of class. Um, and interestingly, because these are digital natives, and I guess I would have assumed that they would come in more skilled at being able to oh, evaluate. Oh, yeah, this is actually... Online. Yeah, no, I've seen data on this. It's it's counterintuitive. They are not actually more skilled at it. Um, weirdly enough, yeah. No, yeah, they're they're yeah. not. And so, um, yeah, teaching them how to navigate online. Um, although they um, they are excellent at bringing me things that I would never find because um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. they're in the corners of Reddit, Reddit and all kinds of places where I'm not. And so, um, mm-hmm. they share those things with me, but they're not skilled at navigating it. Um, Mm -hmm. but whether this is a societal solution, I, I mean, it's clearly not, I, I don't, Mm -hmm. that's beyond what I can do, I suppose. When they ask about what's the harm, do you ever talk to them about like conspiracy spiral where, you know, once you've bought the idea that there's a they out there like conspiring to hide certain information it becomes so much easier to slip into more and more dangerous conspiracy theories or more and more dangerous pseudoscience i mean certainly what the important thing is to not start down the rabbit hole Mm -hmm. because once you start going like it's never ending Mm -hmm. um and so and there's another one of those harm things it's really difficult to uh, silo the areas that you're willing and able to critically think about and not others. Mm-hmm. And so um, being able and willing to assess all of your beliefs with this kind of um, critical thinking. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, the important thing, don't don't start down that path because once you do, it'll just suck you in. Mm-hmm. So you're teaching at a community college, and and I don't want to make too much assumptions about socioeconomic status, but my understanding is, generally speaking, that would mean that that probably you are dealing, working with students who are usually from less affluent backgrounds. Does that come into, first of all, is that true? Just tell me if I'm wrong about that, but if if I'm not, I'm curious how much discussions around capitalism and, um, you know, uh, financial status come into the conversations in the class around, you know, driving forces behind the spread of pseudoscience and conspiracism? What's interesting is I I am astonished at the diversity that I have in my mm-hmm. classes. There's a lot of reasons that students would go to a community college. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, um, so I, I do have, um, most of my students, I would say, are on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, but it's not entirely. Um, mm-hmm. have a huge diversity of racial and ethnic background, lots of different languages being spoken, a lot of differing mm-hmm. abilities um, in terms of like some students. I've, I've had students go on and, um, you know, to Wellesley or, you know, even get their doctorates in science and um you know, others are in remedial math classes. Um, I think mm-hmm. their diversity is really helpful in the class because they get to, I, I've mm-hmm. not heard a lot of those um, uh, discussions about capitalism, I should say. Um, mm-hmm. But I do tend to see some of the, I'll say this, um, it's my understanding that one of the things that leads people to conspiratorial beliefs is mm-hmm. a feeling of a lack of control um, over their mm-hmm. lives, of not feeling that they um, have the ability to af- 
affect change in their life because of outside pressures. And in some cases, that actually is true. I mean, the the cards are set up against a mm-hmm. lot of my students. And so they feel powerless, and that can come across in some of their beliefs. Yeah, and so that's that's what I'm sort of curious about, how y'all wrestle with that in the classroom. So from a, like, culturally relevant pedagogy perspective, you know, that I, I think you, I, I agree very much that that kind of diversity of experiences is really valuable in this sphere because it seems like you can have conversations about the way that pseudoscience and conspiracism work in the black communities versus, you know, Latino communities, what kinds of, you know, one of my favorite um, podcasts that I've been listening to recently is I think it's called My Mama Told Me or something like that. And it's all about like conspiracies in black communities. Um, and, I, I, you know, and, and it does, it is that issue where these communities that have experienced genuine oppression, communities that have been targeted genuinely by the CIA or something like that at various points um, in our history, you know, you have this heightened challenge of um, helping to sort of recognize those abuses while preventing them, you know, legitimating a spiral into conspiracism. Yeah, there's um, in some students, a, really profound sense of distrust um, Mm -hmm. towards government, towards the medical community. And I get it. Um, And so part of um, when we cover these various topics is trying to, and actually this area of trust, I I know we talk, um, I don't Mm -hmm. think this gets discussed enough when we talk about how we know things um, Mm -hmm. in terms of knowing where to place our trust. And so um, that is certainly an issue that is important to address. Mm-hmm. These so things happened. Yeah. yeah. So you talk to them about like, as part of science literacy, like assessing different experts and like figuring out, is this person like a reliable source versus as an individual, someone I can put my trust in versus not? Yes, for certain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Knowing where to place your trust. What is an expert? What is an expert consensus? Why is an expert consensus more reliable? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Do any students ever come to you sort of, you said you mentioned a little bit about the um, uh, the the autism stuff. Are there any other ones that you feel like frequently by the end of the semester, folks are recanting a little bit? Oh, Recanting. You know, um, the very last case study that I do is Herbalife. And mm-hmm. um, I actually have had many students who have sold Herbalife or know people who mm-hmm. have. And it makes sense. These MLMs prey on people who are poor, um, people of color, women. Right. There's that capitalism angle again, too. Yeah. And they sell it to you like you can be empowered and be your own boss and make money. Um, And so, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it it is the last thing we do. And I think it's important that it's the last thing that we do. Um, But that's the thing, like real empowerment is knowing um, when someone is full of shit. And in that case, Mm -hmm. like, you're being targeted because they they see you as a, a target. Pseudoscience peddled to women is one of my major pet peeves. And um, mm-hmm. I've seen the argument people have made about how debunking that pseudoscience is somehow anti-women. Mm-hmm. And I would I argue think, uh, that it is. I think Gwyneth Paltrow makes that argument when she does her goop stuff, doesn't she? Yeah, she does. Yeah. I, how is, is that? Empower- it's empowerment for her. No, gosh, right. She doesn't know who I am, of course. Um, yeah. But it's empowerment for her because she's making bank off of it. But mm-hmm. um, is is um, fooling someone empowering? I I don't see how that is a legitimate argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's it is it is so hard because that's the the key right these conspiracies these pseudosciences all of them like you said they target people who often have a very genuine problem and they say we will solve your problem with a very overly simplistic solution of some sort that tends to mostly involve extracting more resources from the already uh challenged individual yeah and if you fail it's your fault 
Right. There's all that victim blaming stuff that goes into it as well. So there's all these kind of do y'all talk about like naturalness as well as another like common, you know, concept that gets abused by all sorts of forms of pseudoscience? Oh, for sure. Um, there are mm -hmm. pseudoscience ad. Um, I have the characteristics of pseudoscience that um, mm -hmm. and tell them how to sell it. Uh, but if you're selling a supplement, it has to appeal to nature. It has to be all natural from some plant extract or something somewhere from the Amazon rainforest. And it has to have been used mm -hmm. by, you know, ancient indigenous communities who have some inherent natural mm -hmm. uh, ancient wisdom. Yeah. Yep. Perfect. Yep. All the all the high points there. Um, that's great. So so let me ask you there's something I always like to ask folks who are dealing who, who like spend their time in this part of the world. Is there any pseudoscience or conspiracy or something that you have felt tempted by yourself over the course of your life? Something that maybe either you did you used to believe or you were like, I, I could almost get there. So yeah, actually, um, <laughs> that was a very pregnant. So I'm very curious now. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I was um, raised in a very small town in rural Iowa, and mm. grew up um, in a fundamentalist church. And the Earth was six thousand years old, and okay. um, it was going to end soon in some fiery, you know, whatever. And like only the true believers were going to be saved. Hopefully, and yeah, right. And I, I mean, I really, I grew up believing that um mm -hmm. yeah i i, I do so, understand um yeah go ahead yeah no go ahead please when it's part of your identity like that and mm -hmm. part of um, your community identity it's really hard to break away um for me it, it, most people think that it was studying science that made me turn away from that but actually it wasn't um mm -hmm. i remember so um in this church i was taught that um god made man in his image and you know men mm -hmm. were perfect and godly and then um made a woman out of him to serve him and then when mm -hmm. she tempted him and is then the cause of all sin in the world um and that of course is why women aren't allowed to write all of that um and i remember thinking basic this nature sounds yeah. <laughs> it doesn't sound right but okay and so i remember in world civ <laughs> one and the professor talking about like all these ancient cultures and the the environment that they lived in led to them creating different gods i remember that day sitting in class it was like a light bulb went off like wait man-made god not mm. right so um but i see now looking back that i was prone to the reason i was able to let uh -huh. that belief go was because it also attacked another area of my identity which is that as a female of you know trying mm -hmm. to feel like i had some independence and so on um so, yeah, this idea of attaching different identities to your beliefs is obviously how I got in and how I got out. But, yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I do see how easy that can be, especially, I mean, when it's everyone you know believes it. Um, it's interesting there that you said uh, it wasn't studying science that, that got you out of it, but it sounds like it was studying anthropology, which is a kind of science, right? That was learning about what anthropologists had discovered about, you know, how all a lot of these cultures all reproduce these kinds of behaviors. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I <laughs> I don't mean to insult the, uh, the uh, social sciences. No, no, it's, it's just um, interesting. Yeah. Um, so this brings up another topic that is very hot button in this realm, and the data is sort of ambiguous, but sort of from your own personal experience and from, I don't know, I'm curious if you've talked to your students at all about this, what do you see as the relationship between religion, pseudoscience, and conspiracism? Do you worry that religion primes the pump, as it were, for the kinds of thinking that are, are you know, central to the stuff that we've been talking about? I mean, this is my personal belief. Um, I think it's pretty hard to... Um, when you believe in something that 
has no evidence for it, um, that it's hard to not let um, that type of thinking, that epistemology, um, bleed into other aspects of your thinking. Mm -hmm. So um, Mm -hmm. I, I would think so. In class, I'm very clear about not covering God. Um, I, I see Stephen Jay Gould's non-overlapping magisteria. Um, I'm a huge fan of, you know, God may or may not be true. Actually, any of this supernatural stuff may or may not be true, but we can't ever know. So we're going to stick to um, the things that we're going to call science. Um, which mm-hmm. are things that can be falsified. But I actually, mm-hmm. um, I don't tend to have issues with students um, bringing in religious beliefs and having those impact other beliefs that we're covering in class. Um, if anything, mm-hmm. some of the new age beliefs. Um, but um, yeah, I used to teach in Iowa and Nebraska. And I remember at one point um, it was biology and I was teaching uh, evolution. And I, I had students in the back of the class who wouldn't listen, who were praying for me during that time. Um, but I'm in Massachusetts. Actually, most of my students don't have that strong of beliefs, religious beliefs uh-huh, that uh-huh. I've had. Um, so, yeah, it's it's not been an issue. Interesting. Yeah, I certainly had a different experience when I was teaching out in Colorado versus on the East Coast in terms of uh, the percentage of my students who were coming to my ethics class from a religious ethics background. Um, Now, another issue that is very important, I think, in this space, and I'm curious if you spend any time on in your class, is sort of race science, things like eugenics, but even sort of modern race realism do you cover that and do you like take the hard line on saying that this you know like this stuff is um pseudoscience um how do you how do you approach those kinds of issues i actually haven't covered race science since i stopped teaching intro bio and that was one of the mm-hmm. issues that i covered in intro bio to make it relevant to students um mm-hmm. we covered i Put it in terms of um, testing the race concept and so defining races and of course for anything to be biological it can't just be humans we have to apply it to other species and so um speciation and defining a species mm-hmm. and what separates species and and so, so um and then how different skin colors for example are adaptations to different uv environments and um the students found that kind of stuff uh very interesting um but as i I haven't covered that uh for years and i've not Mm -hmm. had students bring it up interesting okay i was just curious if it was something that because you know i think um I, i think we're seeing a resurgence of things related to it with all of the like crt debate um and stuff um, so, you know, I just think there's a lot of different kinds of conspiracies and pseudoscience bouncing around in our media ecosystem as we're going through all of this kind of major cultural shift. Um, so last thing I got to ask before we get us to the enlightening round, are there other resources besides your really great website that will point folks towards here again in a second? Um, are there other resources that you found particularly valuable, um, for like understanding this stuff and conveying it to your students? Um, the one book that um, I recommend mm-hmm. to students buy for the class if they want uh, a supplement is um, uh, Stephen Novella's Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Um, I think mm, it uh-huh. does an excellent job uh, laying out um, different kinds of biases and heuristics and fallacies and covering different um, uh, types of pseudoscience. Um, also a huge fan of uh, Carl Sagan's Demon Haunted World. Um, I think mm-hmm. that should be required reading for absolutely everyone. Um, I have a, a resources page on uh, my Canvas. I, I don't require a textbook for the class. And the reason is mm-hmm. that it's just such a unique course that I've not found anything mm-hmm. that, especially that if I'm going to ask my students to buy something. So I sort of here and there with bits of things and um, you know, Things like the You Are Not So Smart podcast, um, mm-hmm. or there's great YouTube channels like uh, SciShow or um, a Crash Course. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And um, I can I can think of some other resources to point you to as well. I, it's a, I have a similar experience oh, yes, when please. I teach um, 
uh, AI ethics where I feel like there just isn't quite a textbook that that like covers everything in the way that I, I want it to. I think a lot of these, we have so many of these interdisciplinary topics these days that are that are important, but it's it's just difficult to get enough of a critical mass, it seems like, to get the good resources together um, for them. So thank you for that suggestion. Um, so And actually, um, I would... I would note that um, I have had a lot of feedback from students in terms of mm -hmm. they really appreciate the um, the resources being the kinds of things they would have access to anyway and might consume mm -hmm. anyway because they mm -hmm. get to discover resources that would um, help them continue to learn beyond the class. They get to learn what a good resource online looks like. Um, it gets mm -hmm. to be more dynamic and updated and so on. Yeah, absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think... Um, especially when you're doing work like this, that is, that is trying to train behaviors that you want them to reproduce out there in authentic environments in the world, the more that they are engaging with authentic material rather than... Because another thing that you find in the research about this kind of work is there's a strong deference to textbooks that's hardwired into students, where if they read it in a textbook, they just think it's true a lot of the mm -hmm. time. Um, and so much of what you're trying to do here is to get them to like not take anything necessarily as true, especially if it's coming from what seems to be a sort of certified authority source. Though, of course, again, then there's the balance. Like, you're trying to make them skeptical, but not too skeptical, right? Because if they go too far into not trusting, then they're just background to the conspiracies again. Yeah, I've actually had that happen. The first time I tried to teach skepticism, it completely backfired. Um, so mm -hmm. I can uh, appreciate that. But yeah, and with textbooks... Um, they're not ever going to read textbooks unless they're forced to read textbooks. And so mm -hmm. um, I want them to continue to learn. And so a textbook isn't really useful for um, the lifelong learning process. And they're really expensive. Mm -hmm. And I feel terrible asking my students sure. to spend that much money on a textbook they only use bits and pieces of. Absolutely. Strong agree. All right. Well, I, uh, unfortunately, I've got to cut it off there because I've got to torture you now. So this is the enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. For folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. You're going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Those are your choices. You cannot hedge. You cannot explain what you mean. It's just real or not real. Do you understand what the assignment is? I do, but I really like to hedge. I know, but you're not allowed to here. So uh, <laughs> we're going to control ourselves, right? So first of all, to get things primed, is anything real? Yes. Okay, great. So let's find out what is real. The external world, real or not real? Real. Colors, real or not real? Not real. Phenomenal consciousness. Not real. Free will. Real. Selves or persons. Real. Genders. Real. Races. Not real. Species. Not real. Morality. Real. Rights. Not real. Knowledge. Not real. God or gods. Not real. Society. Not real. Money. Not real. Numbers. Real. Mm, fictional characters. <laughs> Not real. Holes, like a hole in the ground. Real. Chairs. Real. Sandwiches. <laughs> real. Science. Real. Mm, natural laws. Real. Beauty. Not real. Love. Not real. Causality. 
Real. And finally, time. Real. And I feel like I was wildly inconsistent. <laughs> Everybody feels that way. That's, that's part of that epistemic humility thing. I was uh, surprised that you said science is real after all of that Pomo stuff earlier. <laughs> yeah. It, oh, it is. Science <laughs> as a process is real. The knowledge we gain from it is tentative and uncertain and okay. limited. And yes, and here's me hedging and hemming and hawing. It's okay. I, I a little bit of venting afterwards is acceptable. It's a, it's an understandable part of the process. I feel like every single one of those there, like with a couple of scotches at night, would just be in a riot conversation. <laughs> yeah, I can't even give consistent answers when I'm sober, so I wouldn't worry about it too much. Okay. <laughs> so, Melanie, this has been a lot of fun. Do you want to let folks know where they can find you on the twitters and your website and whatnot? So the website is thinkingispower.com uh, and I have a Facebook mm -hmm. page and a Twitter as well. Um, the website is where I try to put most of my content um, and then put some of it out on social. I'm new to Twitter. I'm glad I found you on Twitter. I'm still trying to figure out how Twitter works. And it's a strange place. Um, but uh, I am on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And you can contact your me handle through on my Twitter. Uh, it's at uh, thinking powers. Okay, great. And we'll have it in the show notes as well. And my email is through so, my wonderful. Um, Thank you so much. website. Been... Okay, great. Wonderful. Um, well, thank you so much. Um, and I look forward to uh, seeing more of your uh, exercises on Twitter. Well, thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks to our listeners and patrons who make this show possible. To our newest patron, Mark and Dressen. And as always, thanks to our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Lauren Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, Cormot Orkman the, on Twitch, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, and CampQuest.org, CampQuest.org, CampQuest.org. And all the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. One dropped last week. Most of all, whatever else other people tell you, remember, you are the void and the void is you.